Before we jump into the show, I want to let you all in on something. I've been kind of sitting on this since last year, trying not to let it bother me, but it keeps happening. So it's time I told you about it. There are people out there who really do not like Crackdown. I don't just mean randos tweeting me nasty stuff. That's not great, but I'm used to it. I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about groups and individuals with some power, resources, and influence who want to shut us down, who want to defund Crackdown. Some don't like how we report on cops, or health program cuts, or methadone. Now there's a group in Vancouver who don't like how we expose their scapegoating of drug users. This group is openly conspiring to get our funding pulled. We can only really do investigative journalism because many of you donate to our Patreon. We use the funds you give us to do the really serious detective shit, and I want to do more of that. What you chip in every month at patreon.com slash crackdownpod, that keeps us independent. You're a bulwark against the people who want to shut us up. You are the Crackdown Auxiliary, and we're always looking for more help to do this work. So thank you for having our six. This episode discusses suicide. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide or know someone who is, you can reach out for help at crisisservicescanada.ca. Then there's the mini pig next door, but we, we won't go into that either. Wait, hang on. There's um, a mini I, pig next door? There is. Like there's a pig. A mini like, pig. A, like, like a pig? Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Um, but I think they took him, they put him down for his afternoon nap. So I think we're okay. It's funny. On, on Crackdown, we, you know, we always hope that our interviews don't get interrupted by the pigs, but we really... We really are literally talking about a pig this time. (laughs) I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 20, Cut Off. There's a thing that happens in a lot of detective stories. It's become a bit of a cliche, but it still works. Maybe the most famous example is from the movie The Maltese Falcon. Humphrey Bogart plays Sam Spade, a low-rent private detective. One day, a woman comes in and tells him, I'm trying to find my sister. I have reason to believe that she's here in San Francisco. At first, it seems like a relatively simple case. But of course, the more Bogart pulls on the thread, the deeper it all goes. Pretty soon, the bodies start stacking up and nothing is as it seems. You, uh, you aren't exactly the sort of a person you pretend to be, are you? I'm not sure I know exactly what you mean. This story is kind of like that. Over the last couple of months, I've been trying to answer a question I thought was relatively simple. But the more I looked into it, the more complex the whole thing got. I found myself challenging some of the most basic assumptions about the overdose crisis and how we got here. But, Like I said, it all started somewhere a lot more simple. It started with Jeff. Mr. Loudon, you want to introduce yourself? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Do it! It's Jeff Loudon off the podcast. Jeff Loudon is a Crackdown editorial board member and one of my oldest friends. Jeff and I have been looking out for each other since the 90s. When we first met... I could tell we were alike. We were both artistic. He was a poet, I was a musician. We both had a dry sense of humor, and we both felt the howling, 
that psychic pain of alienation I've known for as long as I can remember. Ask most dope fiends and we'll tell you something like this. We have this kind of inner torment. It's always with us. And the first time we try down, it's gone. Just all at once, we feel normal. For Jeff, that first time came when he was just nine years old. My foster brother said, uh, here, check this out. Love at first fix. What did you like about it? You're at peace with everything. Um, I don't know, you had a nice little warm blanket fucking settling around you and everything was fucking peaceful. Like, there was no stress or bullshit unless you got sick. And I didn't have that problem for a little while anyways. I always knew that Jeff had a lot more pain to numb out than I did. He was eight months old when the government took him away from his mom and removed him from the Curve Lake First Nation. Jeff was adopted out to a white family. This was no accident. It was part of a racist government program now called the 60s Scoop. They stole his family, his culture, and his home. And then there's the physical stuff. Jeff's got a bum knee and there's shit wrong with his spine. He doesn't complain about it too much, but I can tell when he's hurting. You know, your, knee, your knee's been bugging you as long as I've known you. What, yeah, what well, happened? Yeah, there's no cartilage in it. And my, what do you call it, femur keeps chipping. So, so how, when did that happen, or how did that happen? Working, fighting, I don't know. Just general wear and tear. My knee, my hip, my back, my neck. My body is a jigsaw puzzle, so I'm always in pain. And so, Jeff and I would get fucked up together. We did oxys, morphine, T's and R's, dillies, rock, heroin, fentanyl patches, whatever we could get our hands on. But this made for a hard life. Getting money was a constant grind. Getting locked up was a constant threat. And dope sickness was always just around the corner. I want it better for us. So in the 2000s, I got on methadone. And after a while, it kept the howling at bay. It's like I'd walk through a gate to this place where I didn't have to worry about spending all my money, getting arrested, feeling dope sick or overdosing. I wanted that for Jeff too. So I nagged him a bit, and eventually he got on methadone. And then he got a prescription for morphine pills as well. That morphine script changed everything. For the first time since he was just a kid, Jeff didn't need to score dope anymore. And he seemed to be in way less pain. Soon Jeff had a new girlfriend and he moved out of the hood. I remember their building even at a pool. Oh, that fucking weird-shaped condo right across from the brewery? Yeah, 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 that's, that's the one. Yeah, I lived there for quite a while. Fucking, yeah. That was on my time off of dope. Yeah, and so, I mean, that would be one of the things you were doing with your time off was... Yeah. Getting a life. Yeah. Having an old lady getting fucked. <laughs> yeah. And not by the government. <laughs> Seeing Jeff safe and happy was pure relief, but watching things fall apart was excruciating. Someone really close to Jeff died, and it hit him hard. It's like the floor dropped out from under him. I lost track of Jeff, and I found out later that he'd spent the winter living in an alley, and the hits kept coming. I remember one day in the summer of 2015. We're in Jeff's new place, a 10 by 10 room in the Washington Hotel. He handed me a little piece of paper. 
It had obviously been crumpled up and smoothed back out again. I squinted down at rows of tiny doctor handwriting. I'm getting cut off, he explained. Jeff's morphine was going to get tapered right down to nothing. I remember feeling prickles in the back of my neck. I didn't know what to do. The gate was closing. They were sealing it up. And Jeff and I were going to be on different sides. They were taking my friend. Stop sleeping. Uh, just went fucking right downhill. And uh, I ended up going back dealing dope and fucking getting busted. I ended up going to court. Uh, I got lucky on that because I had a good damn lawyer. But I ended up with four trafficking charges. Uh, still, it was all bullshit that didn't need to happen. I worry about Jeff these days. The drug supply has never been more toxic. And so sometimes when we say goodbye, I get a feeling it's hard to shake. Like the other week, he wasn't answering my calls. And I thought, that's it. He's gone. Eventually, I found out his phone was just busted. But when I tell Jeff that I'm worried, he usually just brushes it off. He says something like, I'm too bitter to die. I can't OD. Fuck, I tried to get rid of me a couple of times and I don't know. But you have overdosed though before, right? Yeah, but it was benzos that I went down on him. And it's where I never usually grab stuff, but it was a desperation move. And live and learn on that one. Yeah. They found me like seven in the morning. When was this? I think it was fucking the fall past. Yeah? Yeah, so almost a freaking year. Jeff wants to retire from the grind. He says he just wants to be a citizen. And that's what I want for him too. Maybe that's why I haven't been able to let this go. It just seems so unfair that he hasn't been given a chance. For five years, I've asked myself the same question. Why? Why did they take his pills away? Why would anyone want to do that? A few months ago, I decided to actually try to figure this shit out. So I started with Laura. Yeah, I have a really bad filing system. If you were here to see, there are piles of files everywhere. <laughs> so this is like half office, but also like half squirrel nest, really, yes, right? Yes, and then... So you got like... what? Do you I'm got? in my friend Laura Shaver's office. Laura's the president of the BC Association of People on Methadone, or BC APOM. Back in 2015, Jeff and I would go to BC APOM meetings together. We'd sit in the back and he'd mutter funny little asides to me. I remember one meeting. It was the summer. People were jockeying for a spot in front of the old oscillating fan. That was the meeting where Jeff told the group he was getting cut off morphine. Now, I'm hoping that somewhere in this office, Laura has notes from that day. So here we have, like, I think these are all uh, handwritten minute books, because until... So you get a stack of, like, 14 notebooks there. Yeah, so one of them, this one is from 2011. There we go, I found some 2015. As Laura and I read through the old meeting notes, says, we start to remember says, more. After Jeff told the group about getting cut off, other people started saying, hey, this happened to me too. So Stephen is down to only six meals of morphine. Doctor may take him right off. He's feeling a lot of pain from old injuries and getting older. So this is one of the, this is one of the- Who's that, Steve? Steve, Stephen from, um, who used to be on the BCA pump board. That's right, the guy, and he was the uh, sergeant of arms. He used to open the door and he had that scooter. Is that, is that the guy I'm thinking of? Yes. I remember when a friend of ours 
got taken off his morphine. Um, it really fucked him up good. He started dealing heroin again really heavy to make up for the money, to make the money up so he could buy the medication that he needed. So that that's one person who was like, had to sell heroin. There's there's Jeff who was coming in here and telling us that stuff that's and was right. on the board. Then there's Lori. Lori. She got cut off of her meds and she ended up she actually ended up overdosing, did she not? That's right, yeah, 2017 she died. Let me see. Uh, then there was Tracy, and then, oh, fuck, man. That's like four people that are quite close, actually. That meeting, back in 2015, was when we got our first clue about what was actually going on. Many of the people in our group who were getting their meds cut down went to the same clinic. Many even had the same doctor, Christy Sutherland. We didn't know all that much about Dr. Sutherland back then, except that she worked at the Portland Hotel Society's clinic, where lots of people on Vancouver's downtown east side go. But no one knew why she was cutting down the meds, so we asked Laura to send her an email. I wrote, it has been brought to my attention that people are being taken off their medication, which of course turns people's lives into a twist. Some people cannot handle it, cannot handle. Is there a certain reason for this? Not only are people still in hell with the new methadone, those that are lucky to have pain medication, they are worried that soon they will feel withdrawals from both. Please, Christy, we ask for a straightforward answer if there is one, and if you are being bound by a new regulation, please fill us in. At the next meeting, Laura opened her laptop, and she read Dr. Sutherland's response to the group. Yeah, so hi, Laura. Great to hear from you. I'm happy to chat about this issue. No, it's not to do with the college. Rather, this is an emerging body of evidence to point to some of the harms of ongoing morphine use for chronic pain. Dr. Sutherland wrote that these kind of opioid medications are risky at doses over 30 milligrams. People can overdose, she said. But that didn't make sense, because without the meds, people would just end up buying drugs off the street, and that seemed a lot more dangerous. I want to be really supportive for people to find non-medication ways to lessen their pain, such as swimming, exercise, and mindfulness. Are you fucking kidding me? We're, so go swimming? That's what, that's what we're supposed to do? Non-medication ways? Laura is still bewildered by this. That summer, our group was trying to outrun dope sickness and survive a brutal housing crisis. Going swimming seemed unlikely. I knew what I had to do next, go talk to Dr. Sutherland. But I wasn't looking forward to it. This was going to be hard stuff to talk about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're in a clinic. Dr. Sutherland shows us in. We walk through her clinic with high ceilings and exposed brick and into one of the examination rooms. So just uh, come through the curtains? Yeah. Uh, well, I got, a, I got a bunch of questions. Okay. <clears throat> So could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. I'm a family doctor, and I'm the medical director here at the Portland Hotel Society in the downtown east side, and I'm the physician education lead at the BC Center on Substance Use. Dr. Sutherland tells me she started getting skeptical of opioid painkillers when she was in university. At the time, Big Pharma was really promoting the stuff to med students. One of Dr. Sutherland's textbooks was actually sponsored by Purdue, the makers of OxyContin. We sort of scoffed at it. I never read that Purdue textbook. I wish I had kept it for history, basically, to have as like a piece of medical education history that I was in med school and got handed a pharmaceutical textbook. Wow. Um, and I remember being in med school and learning about pain as the fifth vital sign and having um, oxy-neo outreach lunches and things like that. 
OxyNeo outreach lunches? Yeah, I remember I was at a conference and the OxyNeo rep put on a, a lunchtime lecture. And I, I remember going to the lecture and then realizing that it was funded by a pharma company and leaving. Right. Dr. Sutherland says her problem with Purdue and other big pharma companies was that they were minimizing the risks of taking opioids. Risks like addiction, insomnia, sexual dysfunction. Uh, bone mineral density loss, hormonal disruption. So as a clinician, you never want the prescription that you write to hurt the person that you're caring for. Uh, so I was meeting people who were on uh, multiple high doses of opioids and thinking, my gosh, uh, are you sleeping at night? Mm-hmm. And, and even for things like, you know, physicians ask about erectile dysfunction and like, what is your sexual functioning? Uh, have you ever had a fracture? Should I be worried about your bone health? Those were the problems that you were seeing with your patients. You were seeing like fractures and erectile dysfunction. and Yeah, you know, a lot of times when you talk with people and say like, what is when you wake up in the morning, do you feel bright eyed and bushy tailed? Like, how is your pain during the day? And they, they would say like, not good. Like, I, I don't feel great. And so then you say, well, maybe this opioid is not serving you well. Uh, and so at that time, I started tapering people. You put a whole bunch of people onto taper, some proportion of your patients onto a taper. Mm-hmm. We had this meeting and we were you know, starting to talk about people you know, putting up their hands and saying, oh, my, my meds are getting cut off or I'm on a steep taper. And we asked, or Laura was at the front, she said, oh, how many people are feeling this? And put up your hands. And we saw a whole bunch of hands, like a lot of the room went up, right? And, and in that um, email, you were recommending alternatives, things that people could do. Yeah. Well, because for pain, um, we know that exercise and meditation, and I know I suggested swimming, and then you sort of laughed at me for suggesting swimming, but that uh, those are the things that if you have strong muscles and you have a good sleep, you have less pain. I mean, Christy, honestly, it it, it wasn't me. It was when when she read out that line, it just, it felt to us like you didn't understand what people what people's lives were about. I mean, I can see that. Um, but for me, I was working at that time to get everyone uh, rec passes because you can work with social workers to get everyone rec passes. So I was trying to get everyone to like go to the, the pool at Hillcrest and sit in the hot tub thinking that that would be helpful for their pain. Right. I thought I was doing the thing that would give my patients more safety. It's hard for me to talk about swimming fractures and erectile dysfunction. All things considered, that stuff just doesn't seem important to me. And when I bring that up, Dr. Sutherland explains she was just trying to go by the book. She wanted to give people on the downtown east side the same kind of medical care they'd get if they weren't poor or weren't using drugs. But Dr. Sutherland tells me eventually she started to question that logic. It just took me growth as a clinician to realize that opiates are, can be harmful but that I have to be thoughtful about how I apply it in this context for this patient population with this changing illicit drug supply. And that when we're looking at risk of overdose death, we want people to be safe on opioids that we're prescribing. You know, I wish I could go back in time and not have tapered those opioids because that was the wrong thing to do, but it was the thing I did with the information I had at the time. And it makes me sad. It makes you sad? What yeah. do you mean? Well, just, um, I don't know, being down here for so long and having so many patients that I care about die. And there's just thinking about the role of medicine in that is <laughs> just really upsetting. Yeah, sorry, I didn't, I haven't cried in a long time. <laughs> I wish Dr. Sutherland hadn't cut down people's meds. 
But I also know that she's had a front row seat to the crisis for years now, and that's changed the way she thinks. People in our group now have a lot of trust and respect for Christy. I don't think that opiates should be under the purview of physicians. People are very angry at physicians because we have taken on the role of gatekeepers. So to say like, oh, well, how can you as a physician suddenly not want to be a gatekeeper when you've insisted on being a gatekeeper for the past many decades? And then so for me, I'm like, well, I, w I wasn't the one that set up this system right. that made me the gatekeeper. And I, I don't want to be. And I can see now that I shouldn't be the gatekeeper to this. As I leave the clinic, I start to wonder how common this all was. Was it just Dr. Sutherland cutting people's meds down back in 2015? Or were other doctors doing it too? I find a paper written by an academic named Benedict Fisher. In it, there's this graph. It's got a blue line that represents the number of opioid prescriptions in BC. Through the 2000s, the line keeps going higher and higher, meaning doctors were prescribing more and more opioids. I think that's around when Jeff got on pills too. He's part of that blue line that's going up. But then something starts to happen around 2011. The line starts to fall, fast. And the line isn't just falling in BC, it's falling across Canada. In 2012, it starts to fall in the US as well. What happened to Jeff is so much bigger than the story of one doctor. And now I got a new mystery to solve. What the fuck happened? And why did all of these doctors change their minds? Would you mind introducing yourself? All right. I am Helena Hansen, and I am at New York University in the psychiatry and anthropology departments. To know why that blue line went down, I first got to figure out why it went up. Why did so many people get onto these pills in the 1990s and the 2000s? And I knew that Dr. Helena Hansen could fill me in. She's a medical doctor and an academic. She studied the history of North America's so-called overprescribing crisis for years. And like me, she got into this topic for very personal reasons. So I'm African-American, and um, I grew up in an upwardly striving family. You know, clearly I went to medical school. I made it, quote unquote. I have a bunch of uncles who served time or ended up in state mental hospitals based on substance use. Three out of four of them are dead today. Then I've been on the other side as a psychiatrist in an ER, you know, like working with police officers that have brought someone in, you know, so I've, I've, I've actually been able to see many different angles of this. Dr. Hansen says the story starts back in the 90s. Deregulation from Reagan, Bush, and Clinton had made it easier than ever to license and market new medications. And around that time, you started to see all these new blockbuster meds, Prozac, Viagra, and most importantly, OxyContin. So prior to OxyContin, opioids for pain were prescribed by specialists, people who were treat treating patients who had acute or severe pain, like cancer pain, post-surgical pain. And they were thought of as, as uh, dangerous enough that you needed to have somebody with a lot of experience managing them to prescribe. Which meant that most people had to see a pain specialist to get opioid pills. But Purdue wanted to change that with their new medication, OxyContin. Oxys were opioid pills that featured something called sustained release capsule technology. 
They don't wear out, they go on working. They do not have serious medical side effects. You're hearing clips from Purdue Pharmaceuticals promotional videos. The company's big innovation, sustained release technology, worked like this. Instead of getting an opioid hit all at once, this special capsule released the drug smoothly over hours. Purdue claimed Oxy would last 12 hours, and they said that by releasing the drug slowly, people were way less likely to get wired. In the words of one Purdue sales rep, no buzz, less abuse. There's no question that our best, strongest pain medicines are the opioids, but these are the same drugs that have a reputation for causing addiction. Some patients may be afraid because they're perceived as too strong or addictive. The manufacturer was able to convince the FDA and the public that it was low risk. Less than 1%. Much less than 1%. Of patients taking opioids actually become addicted. Because of the FDA acceptance of their claim to minimal addictiveness, they were able to market it for moderate pain, like lower back pain, uh, for use among primary care doctors, generalist doctors. And that was their big marketing breakthrough. These drugs should be used much more than they are for patients in pain. Once you've found the right doctor and have told him or her about your pain, don't be afraid to take what they give you. Oxy was approved by the FDA in 1995. Right away, Purdue launched one of the most ambitious marketing campaigns in the history of pharmaceuticals. They hired hundreds of sales reps and offered them massive incentives if they could get doctors to prescribe the pills. They focused most of their attention on what they called super core doctors, GPs who were willing to prescribe huge quantities of the stuff. They also funded medical textbooks and sponsored a ton of pain conferences. All of this worked. Oxy became a smash hit. In 2002 alone, Purdue sold $1.5 billion worth of the stuff. By the end of the 1990s, opioid pills seemed to be everywhere. Well, maybe not everywhere. It's well documented that the, that the manufacturer targeted white, rural, and suburban markets for many reasons. Number one, they are the markets that tend to buy expensive, particularly suburban white middle-class consumers tend to buy newly patented expensive drugs like OxyContin was. But also when you're introducing something like an opioid and trying to get it as deregulated as much as possible, it really counts who is the perceived consumer. And so rural and su particularly suburban whites were not seen as high risk, as addictable. Honestly, the, like... You you would go to a party here and people would have just bottles of pills sitting on the table. Like, everybody had them. So they were, like, just there. This is Brian Quinby. Brian is a comedian and host of the podcast Street Fight. When Crackdown was just starting out, Brian had me on the show and it was a huge boost for us. It also gave Brian and I a chance to talk about some really important stuff in life like politics and high art. I grew up listening to corn and Limp Bizkit and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then as I got, it took me until I was I just, I just fucking hate Limp Bizkit. I'm sorry, I just like. <laughs> Look, I I, uh, I like the first album. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even say. I can't disavow any of them. By the end of the 90s, North American social life had become leaner and meaner. Austerity ate away at communities. Jobs were downsized. Unions were smashed. And a hopeless nihilism oozed out across the continent. Black, Indigenous, and communities of color have long faced what researchers call deaths of despair, 
such as overdose and suicide. And because of systemic racism, socioeconomic and health outcomes for these communities have been bad for centuries. But now these kind of deaths were starting to ramp up in white suburbia as well. As a white kid from Columbus, Ohio, Brian was at the epicenter. So I, uh, I, I, was, ba- I was kind of a bad kid in school. And, uh, you know, I, I drank and I, I smoked weed. I was living in a, a two-bedroom garden apartment with three other people with three other people with my now my wife and then two other guys shared a room with a tarp in the middle of it i was very poor i had like no money at all i i worked i made 450 an hour uh washing dishes and i really only worked like 25 hours a week and uh so the you know the only drug you can like consistently be messed up on you know, is acid at that point because it's only five dollars for eight hours of <laughs> tripping. You know, as a kid, Brian dreamed of being a comedian, but there wasn't much of a comedy scene in Columbus, so he just felt kind of stuck. And right around this time, his depression and anxiety started to bloom. I I I thought like panic attacks were just these things that kind of happen in a vacuum. You know, I had depression the whole time like i have been uh diagnosed with it now one morning brian wakes up and his back's hurting bad he doesn't have health insurance so it takes him a while to get it checked out but when he does he finds out he has a kidney stone at first the doctors hope the stone will pass on its own but the pain just gets worse and worse the night before my surgery i was laying in the bed and my dad came to visit me and the nurse came in and th- this moment was forever etched in my mind. I had Howard Stern on the TV in the room. My dad hates Stern, and he was, like, complaining about me watching, a, you know, a sexist pig or whatever is what he was saying. And uh, I'm watching it, and the nurse is like, where's your pain level? And I said, a six. It's like a one to ten thing. And she's like, okay. And she comes back in, and she goes to the thing to give me Dilaudid. And I'm like, oh my God, you know what I mean? And she's like, what, what, are you okay? And I'm like, no, this is great. And she was like, "Uh, well, that's only half of it. Do you want me to finish? And I said, absolutely. And (laughs) I had her finish. Brian says he's sent home from the hospital with 150 Percocet. He calls it his starter kit. And he eagerly pops the pills until they're gone. Then he goes out and scores more on the street. Opioid pills were pretty easy to come by at first. Brian remembers buying Vicodin, Perks, and Oxys 50 at a time. He'd mostly take them on the weekends. Not really to party. They just helped Brian relax and feel normal. There was this one night when he took a bunch of pills and listened to a new record. Deloused in the Comatorium by the Mars Volta. You know, that night I had gotten the booklet that comes with the vinyl in the mail. That's why I was so excited to listen to it because the vi- the booklet was supposed to tell the story. Clips out of the pink I just laid on the uh, couch and I, I was calling my friends on the phone because you didn't have text at the time. And I was saying like, this album is everything like everything about this album is important this is the most important thing i've ever heard in my life 
that night pushed me towards listening to all all different types of music that I had never given a chance before in, in any other time, you know? And like, it was a really big, important moment for me. I can relate. I remember nights nodding out to Joy Division bubble-wrapped in black tar heroin, grateful for a moment of respite. People don't talk about that enough. The conversation seems to always be about what opioids take away from us. It's never about what they give back. The problem is really supply. Once you've had a little peace from that howling alienation, you're going to want it again. But Brian started to need more and more perks to get that same respite. Without the pills, he was getting sick. So he started popping them every night around 8 p.m. And when that didn't cut it, he'd take them right after work. And when that didn't cut it, he'd take them when he woke up in the morning. I, I was like getting to a point where I was spending more money than I should have been spending at the time. And we were really broke. And, you know, uh, so what we would do a lot of times is I would tell my wife, like, oh, we need gas. We don't have money. You should ask your parents if you could use their gas credit card. We would go over and get that credit card and then we would buy a bunch of groceries at the gas station and fill the tank up with gas and then take the card back to them. And then I had all that money left over <laughs> that, that I had had before and I would go spend it. That was like a good example of one of the moves we would pull. But that kind of move got less and less feasible. Brian loses his hookup and has to pay more for the pills. And he's getting sick all the time. It's starting to become a problem at work. At the time, Brian was a cable guy. One day, sick as a dog, he dragged himself over to a client's house. He's not feeling good enough to work on the guy's cable, but he tells himself, it's going to be okay. I just need to get my dealer to come over here. You know, like, I, I, it's all I was thinking about, and I wasn't getting any work done at all. Like, I wasn't doing anything to this guy's cable. I was actually just staring at it. Like in the basement. And I'd probably been there for an hour. So is this like a concrete basement or the fake wood paneling? Or what do we got going on down there? Oh, it was a concrete basement. It was gross, too. There was spider webs everywhere and dog shit everywhere. I do remember that. There's dog shit in the basement. Yeah, a lot of people... <laughs> I don't know if people know this. This might not be common in other places. But there are a ton of people that just let their dog shit in their basement and they never clean it up. So... <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Just a little cable guy knowledge for you, I guess. Right. <laughs> so you're you're surrounded by spider webs and dog shit, uh, staring at a cable box and waiting for your guy to text you back. Yeah. Yep. And uh, he didn't. And uh, I called my boss, and I said, uh, "Hey, uh, I gotta go home." I, I drove to this little like river that we have. It's a creek, actually. But um. I drove where that was and I pulled into the parking lot and I sat down on the ground next to the water and I just like started crying and then I said like there's something wrong with me and uh, uh, I think I sat there and I said I really need to change something something's got to change and uh, I think I'm mentally ill is, is what I felt now Brian had a habit and he wasn't alone. It turns out that Purdue and other pharmaceutical companies were wrong. They claimed that slow-release opioid pills only carried a small risk of physical dependence. But that was based on two studies with people who had short-term injuries. If you took the pills for a longer amount of time, they had a side effect. They could be habit-forming. 
To me, yeah, obviously, opiates are habit-forming. No shit. No matter what slow-release technology you wrap them up in. But the real problem isn't the habit. Lots of meds have side effects like that. Doctors know how to deal with it. The problem comes from losing access. Brian doesn't have health insurance. He's buying his shit off a dealer with his own money and it's fucking up his life. So Brian decides to kick the pills. He tries rehab at first, but it doesn't work out. So did you find something that works better for the mental health stuff than uh, opioids? SSRIs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing that's designed specifically for that. <laughs> I mean, that helps. Therapy has been... I just started therapy this year, and it's really changed the, the way I look at myself. I think what really helped me is having somebody... You know, it's just having somebody from the outside talk to you about stuff really can illuminate it. Brian tells me that his relationship with the pills has completely changed now. He'll still take one at a party every once in a while, but he doesn't need them like he used to. I can't help but wonder if it's because his life is better now. Brian's a professional comedian, like he always wanted to be. He's got a family. People care about him. And it's been a long time since he's had to work in a dog shit basement. Brian was just one kid in Columbus, but there were thousands of people dealing with the same thing in Ohio, in Kentucky, in Pennsylvania, everywhere. All of a sudden in the early 2000s, there were these, there was a, a huge flurry of articles in US media about the quote unquote new face of addiction. The statistics alone are alarming. The number of heroin users has nearly doubled in just the past three years. Even more surprising may be the face of the new addicts. And almost without fail, there were these photos that accompanied the headlines of the new face of addiction of suburban white people. The word white was rarely used, but the, the white race was signaled in coded language. Tonight, you're going to meet kids from families you never thought could fall victim to drugs. Families who did everything right, and still their kids are hooked. That's when, that's when this widespread opioid quote-unquote crisis hit the news. What we found was that almost without fail, the articles with white people were stories, humanistic stories about people who had um, really promising high school careers and were heading off to college or uh, were, were the neighborhood mom that, you know, um, the suburban mom who picked up everyone else's kids along with her own. Pretty much without fail, all of the articles that had black or brown people um, as their, their subjects highlighted the criminal charges against them uh, and lacked that kind of humanizing story. Dr. Hansen tells me that this is the key to understanding what happened next. When opioid use was seen as a black or brown people thing, the media covered it like a criminal justice problem. But the new face of addiction was covered like a public health problem. Drug companies and doctors were to blame. Many stories started referring to an overprescribing crisis. The idea went like this. Doctors handed out way too many pills. And those pills flipped a switch in otherwise normal people, turning them into dope fiends. In this telling, North America's social problems were caused by drug use, not the other way around. 
So um, could you introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Stefan Caritas. I am a physician in internal medicine and addiction medicine. I'm at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine. Dr. Caritas has investigated the so-called overprescribing crisis for years now. And I figured he'd be able to tell me about what happened next, why that blue line started to level off and then fall around 2011. Right off the bat, Dr. Caritas tells me that most doctors are rule followers, and he's no exception. Um, okay, I'm going to make a confession. I hope I don't get in trouble for this. I used marijuana a couple times in high school and a couple times in college. And in 1985 or 6, Nancy Reagan said, just say no. And I thought, you know, it wasn't that fun. Those few times that I used marijuana really wasn't that enjoyable. And I had every reason to believe I would be excellent in getting into medical school. I was already a very good student. I thought, why would I mess that up? I might be the only person who fully responded to Nancy Reagan's message. <laughs> in the early 2000s, Dr. Caritas worked with veterans. Many of his patients had chronic pain, addiction, and mental health problems. I was taught nothing in medical school on this issue. And that's odd because it was Harvard Medical School, which you think would be kind of a leader. You look at how much time is spent in the curriculum of any kind of health profession in rehabilitation, in multidimensional assessment, in addiction, in medication dependence, in pain, in stigma, in social determinants of health. We give very short shrift to any of that. And we always have. It's not just the pharmaceutical industry that forced us to be ignorant about pain and rehabilitation and mental illness and addiction, we chose that path. Dr. Caritas remembers reading the media reports about the new face of addiction in the 2000s. These were stories about doctors handing out pills like candy, doctors acting like drug dealers. In particular, he remembers the case of Dr. William Hurwitz. William Hurwitz, a pain specialist who was sentenced to 25 years in prison for drug trafficking. Hurwitz was a well-respected doctor from the suburbs of Washington. He was in his late 50s when he was arrested by the DEA. His crime was prescribing too many opioids and, in the opinion of prosecutors, ignoring signs that his patients were misusing and diverting the pills. Like, do you remember where you were when you heard about that? Absolutely, because I was working in a Alabama clinic that served a very vulnerable population. and. I was prescribing opioids and usually seeing those patients regularly. And there I saw that there was this physician who was going to go to prison for prescribing excessive opioids. And I remember just feeling nervous, like, how will my practice be regarded? But I took that very seriously. And I understood that this is a high risk situation because in the United States, there is a criminal justice agency looking at how we prescribe. In 2011, the Obama White House issued a report called Epidemic, responding to America's prescription drug abuse crisis. The report laid out a new strategy. The government would take, quote, aggressive law enforcement actions against pain clinics and overprescribing doctors. The Drug Enforcement Agency would start auditing patient records and prosecuting doctors who gave out too many pills. And the doctors got scared and the doctors reduced the medicines and the patients said, I'm not going to make it. And very often at the end of that process, the doctors would say something like, look, it's you or my license. I'm going with my license here. So the doctors got busy. They cut down their opioid prescribing, often without any kind of consent from their patients, and often without offering any kind of alternative for their pain. In both the United States and Canada, 
public health bodies issued stern warnings. Government surveillance systems tracked which doctors handed out the most pills. And in BC, the College of Physicians and Surgeons created hard limits, backed up with the force of law. This shit was definitely not a suggestion. This crackdown on opioid prescribing is arguably the most decisive and ambitious thing governments have tried to do since the approval of Oxy. Dr. Karate says he was worried about what was going to happen next. And then it started. I would hear from patients, my pills just got cut. I can't bear it. And the patient would crash and burn and wind up in the emergency department having swallowed the rest of their pills and some sedatives and a bottle of Jack Daniels saying, no one cares about me. No one's paying attention to me. All they care about is getting the pills to go away. And I'm in despair. Cutting people off was a complete disaster. While that blue line was going up, overdose rates were going up too. But when the doctors started to take the drugs away, things didn't get better. They got worse. In fact, fatal overdoses seemed to increase more in places that cut down on opioid prescribing most aggressively. For his part, Dr. Kerte started studying military veterans who were cut off. And he started to notice that they were dying by suicide as well. I think that we should acknowledge that we don't fully understand why some people die by suicide after medications like opioids are stopped, and that the story of what's really going on there is not just about the pills and the medications that are stopped, but about a complex web of factors. At every turn, people want to narrow it down to the discussion of the chemical, whether it's to say, look, we know we can resolve pain if we just prescribe more of it, or we'll resolve addiction if we just prescribe less of it. It's not just going to be about the brain chemistry, and it's not just going to be about the pills. It's going to be about some things that we haven't chosen to talk about or explore or teach ourselves about. I have a lot of people to this day contacting me um, about suicide plans because, because I have one, and I've said I have one. This is Don Ray Downton, a writer and journalist from Halifax, Nova Scotia. On this show, we mostly talk to drug users, but to close the episode, I wanted to hear from someone else, from someone who only took drugs for physical pain. What was the crackdown on opioid prescribing like for them? Dawn Ray tells me that when she was about 40, she started to feel an ache in her feet. The pain gradually spread up her legs and into her back. A, uh, a rheumatologist told me that an x-ray of my back, that it looked like the back of a the spine of a 90-year-old. So, so sacroiliitis is a rare thing to have, and that's good that it's rare, but when you have it, it's very painful. So you're a writer, and I'm sure you've sat down to try and put words to the pain before. How, what, what do you get when you try to do that? You know, when you go to a pain clinic, you're made to choose from words. The one I always loved was lancinating. Um, like, you know, just sort of like a lance going right into your soft organs, even though this is in my joints, the pain radiates everywhere. Um, it's searing. It's, and the thing I think that people don't, don't realize when pain of that severity becomes chronic is the way that it, it, it closes you in. Donna Ray says her pain made the most basic fundamental parts of her life into a struggle. She remembers one day in particular when she went to the library and checked out a new novel. I had read a lot more by the author Hilary Mantel earlier. She did a great memoir early. Well, I don't know if it was early on for her, but um, it, was, it was quite a while ago, and I loved it. But when I tried to get into Wolf Hall, couldn't. 
I couldn't read it. First and only, I think, only book that I've ever returned to the library unread. So you're not just um, you're not just cut off from your profession. You're cut off from the creative part of your personality, like from a big part of yourself. Um, I think you put that absolutely right. Yes, I was. I, I didn't really know uh, who I was or what was to be said for me in this life because I just kind of felt adrift and aimless and and obviously very... Um, I, I was not realizing my potential, as we like to say these days. And I, I knew it. And I, I also knew I couldn't do anything about it. It was a terrible place to be in. Over the next few years... Don Ray tried everything to quell the pain. Acupuncture, massage, yoga, injections to block nerves, IV lidocaine infusions, anti-inflammatories, antidepressants, cannabis, and even swimming. Finally, as a last resort, Don Ray was prescribed transdermal fentanyl, and that worked almost overnight. Don Ray says that the impossible activities like going for a walk or riding a bike were suddenly possible again. She began to write. She even went back to the library to read Wolf Hall. I fell into kind of a well um, of, of detail and nuance and uh, words and wordplay. And uh, it was just like eating so much good chocolate. Um, it was a completely different experience. But when I had tried to do it the first time on no pain meds, I was overwhelmed by it. It was so tiring to do that. Um, and when I did have good pain control, it was um, it was exciting. It was it was energizing, you know, not enervating. And that was the difference. It was it was just wonderful. Don Ray took fentanyl for 12 years, and she says it gave her a good life. But in the background, the opioid panic was coming to a head. People were paying more and more attention to what they called morphine milligram equivalents, or MME. Many wanted to reduce the MME at a population level, and that meant taking medication away from people with severe chronic pain, like Don Ray. That's because a small fraction of pain patients consume most of the medication. Don Ray still remembers the date. It was January 23rd, 2017. It was winter, right? And it was Nova Scotia. So I had this big uh, brownish parka with this uh, um, big hood and fur and all that. And I had taken it off, which I usually didn't because usually my appointments were short. But for some reason, I had taken it off. And I and I was in one of her little exam rooms. And she came in and she was wearing a yellow sweater. And she was wearing this kind of checked... Um, skirt and it had a kick pleat i remember it had a kick pleat don races her doctor put it bluntly i can't prescribe fentanyl to you anymore after 12 years of refuge she was going to be cut off and i i knew immediately why what it was about so i just said to her this is politics and she said and i quote and i know this for sure because i make as a journalist contemporaneous notes she said it's only half politics and I thought, you shit. I already know that the medical reason, the medical evidence is that this is going to kill me, that I will be thrown into withdrawal, and that if I survive that, I will be thrown into pain, which is not acceptable to me, gives me no quality of life, and would make death preferential. 
I had this roar in my ears. I just had this roar like the ocean in my ears. Uh, I, I remember uh, uh, kind of uh, the going out of the waiting room and down through the, the family doctor's clinic and seeing kind of people on the side, but they all seemed very surreal and the elevator trip down to the drugstore and through the drugstore and out to the parking lot in my car. That's all kind of a blur, like a speeded up uh, Fellini movie or something. And, and I, I don't remember any audio to it except for this awful roar. Don Ray sobs in the drive home. She says she feels totally abandoned. Over the next weeks and months, she's left to scramble. She's able to get meds from a pain clinic for a while, but eventually it shuts down, and she has to endure long stretches without medication. Donnery tells me she's managed to find a workaround, but she can't be sure how long it'll last. On the surface, Donnery seems pretty different from Jeff. She's middle class, she doesn't think of herself as a drug user. She's not criminalized in the same way. But to me, their stories have striking parallels. Don Ray and Jeff were both handed intolerable circumstances. They both struggled for years to get the help they needed. Their lives were improved by opioids, but then their meds were taken away in the name of public health. There's a horrible irony here. The colossal effort to take our drugs away, to switch to tamper-proof formulations, to quell diversion, to make medications less euphoric. All of that just drives the overdose crisis. These medications are struggling to patch over the damage wrought by colonization, poverty, alienation, and pain. And in the absence of any systemic solutions, the drugs aren't going away. Today, public health bodies are putting out mixed messaging. There's less zeal for cracking down on opioids than there used to be. But they're not admitting they fucked up very loud. And that's left doctors to just work things out for themselves. From where I'm standing, most of them still aren't reaching for their prescription pads. People who talk a lot about what's happened politically to, um, to, pain, to people with pain and opiates, they do talk about opiophobes, um, a set of doctors who are phobic about opioids. It's probably not the right term. These doctors are probably not phobic about opioids, but they've just decided that uh, it will benefit them to take the political position that they're taking. I don't know if you could win Scrabble with it, but there you go. There's the word. We shouldn't just leave it to market forces and big pharmaceutical companies to decide who gets opioids. But after looking into this for a few months, I'm not totally convinced we ever had an overprescribing crisis. If you're black, indigenous, or a person of color, you're likely to get underprescribed for pain. Here in British Columbia, we've had a record number of overdose deaths this summer. And it's not because of too much prescription opioids. In fact, I think it's because we don't have enough. We need safe supply. But governments would rather we blame Big Pharma than their own laws and policies. Well, my days are getting fucked up or long gone. Gets getting well is expensive enough. If I want to get fucking high, forget it. <laughs> When's the last time you got really fucking high? Like nodding out high? Mm. I know, a while ago. Over bacon and eggs the other day, Jeff's ribbing me about something, calling me Garfunkel, his favorite nickname for me, and I laugh so hard that tears come to my eyes. Jeff has survived the 60s scoop, 
two overdose crises, years inside Canada's penal system, the methadose switch, getting caught off pills, and now a global pandemic. Today, he's getting prescribed fentanyl patches, and they're helping. He's edging towards a very cautious kind of hopeful. So that's how I'm going to feel too. I wrap my knuckles on the old booth at the Ovaltine Cafe. What's that for, he asks. Knock on wood, for luck, I say. And without even thinking about it, he knocks too. What is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Huh? Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and from our Patreon supporters. You can find a complete transcript of today's show, as well as photographs and links to further readings at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. While there, consider giving us a few bucks. It helps. Special thanks this month to Maria Higginbotham, Owen Williamson, Maria Hudspeth, and Buck Doyle. Thanks also to Dr. Stefan Kertes, who's been answering annoying questions from our team for months now. Dr. Kertes has asked us to let you know that he quote, represents his own views and not those of any of his employers. If you want to learn more about the politics and science of opioid prescribing, we recommend you check out his podcast on Becoming a Healer. You can find the link on our show page. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, Dave Murray, rest in peace, and Sharice Kiwat, rest in peace. Today's episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Alex DeBoer, Alex Kim, Lisa Hale, Ryan McNeil, Sam Fenn, and me, Garth Mullins. Original score for today's episode was written and performed by me, Sam Fenn, and James Ash. Thanks for listening. Be safe and keep six. Is it S- <laughs> What's that? ASMR. Yeah. Isn't this delicious popcorn? No, don't. It's <laughs> That's delicious. Um, no, I, have to, I actually have to take that out of my <laughs>